No breakfast? No worry. It's News Brunch from Boston University. Good morning and welcome to the WTBU News Brunch. I'm Catherine Swindles. And I'm Kendall Tamer. Topping WTBU News at this hour, at least 19 people are dead and more than 20 hospitalized after powerful tornadoes swept through Nashville and Middle Tennessee overnight. The tornadoes were reported just after 11 p.m. Central Time from the small city of Camden through Nashville after midnight and into Cookville in Putnam County after 2 a.m. Nashville resident Sean Anderson says the tornado passed by very quickly. We heard the sirens going off. We heard the wind. We went in the basement. 20, 20 seconds later, it was done. It was gone. 20 seconds. Tennessee is one of the states participating today in Super Tuesday. Due to the tornadoes, voting has been delayed by one hour in Davidson County, where Nashville is located. Tennessee is one of 14 states holding primary elections today, with 1,357 delegates at stake. Candidates Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar have suspended their campaigns, and there's question of where those votes will go. Professor Bruce Shulman, the Willington Huntington Professor of History at Boston University says early voting in primaries can be difficult. So officially it's as if they're on the ballot. Now a lot of people who are voting today know that they've suspended their campaigns and are not going to consider them as serious candidates. But for those people who early voted, they're stuck with those votes. Professor Shulman also says that this year may mean a change in the early voting process. You know, early voting, which makes a lot of sense in a general election in which you really know who you're voting for, um, is problematic in primary campaigns where the people who are in the race are shifting constantly. I think this year we'll we'll point that out because of the fact that we have both the growth of early voting and at the same time large number of candidates dropping out at the last minute. Massachusetts has 141 delegates up for grabs. Former Democratic presidential candidates Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar and Beto O'Rourke are endorsing Joe Biden as their Democratic nominee. The endorsements came in an opportune moment for Biden on the eve of Super Tuesday. Biden says the endorsements are a sign of what Democrats want out of the upcoming election. If Democrats want a nominee to beat Donald Trump, keep Nancy Pelosi Speaker of the House, making sure... We take back the United States Senate. Alongside Joe Biden, the remaining Democratic nominees are Bernie Sanders, Michael Bloomberg, Tulsi Gabbard and Elizabeth Warren. Massachusetts's own Elizabeth Warren votes in her hometown of Cambridge this morning. WTBU reporter Sophie Eisenberg was there and she's back here with us now. Voters lined the street and children lined the windows of Graman Park School this morning all waiting to see Senator Warren come cast her vote. The weather was sunny and warm, and so were people's moods. No sign of discouragement at Warren's disappointing performance in the last four state contests. Warren is entering Super Tuesday as part of a rapidly narrowing field. Tom Steyer, Pete Buttigieg, and Amy Klobuchar all dropped out within the last three days, by all appearances to give Joe Biden a boost against Bernie Sanders. But Warren supporter Matt Speed has a different interpretation. I think a lot of um, Klobuchar and Buttigieg supporters lean more towards Warren than they do Biden. I think Warren more exemplifies their values than Biden does. I'm feeling optimistic. I'm feeling hopeful. (laughs) 
Speed also says they have a more personal reason for supporting Warren's candidacy. And she's honestly probably one of the only candidates that's really talked about trans people, especially on the debate stage and things like that. So for me, that's kind of what really drew me in and kind of secured my vote for her. Rebecca Ramsey says it was Warren's way of talking about her plans for health care reform that earned her unwavering support. Ramsey identifies as Republican, but she often ends up voting Democrat. I'm more liberal leaning and feel like the Republicans are right now, especially now, are going backwards. And I don't want to go backwards. I want to go forward. Ramsey says the candidates who dropped out of the race in the last few days are probably making a calculation based on who they think can beat Donald Trump. I don't know if they're right or not, but I don't feel like switching my allegiance from Warren to Biden at right now. I mean, I, it's still pretty early. Warren hasn't performed well in the first four state contests, but she appears to be counting on all the time she's put in Super Tuesday states from early on in her campaign. That said, she faces the very real possibility of losing her home state of Massachusetts to Bernie Sanders today. So we'll just have to watch the returns tonight to see how she does and if she will stay in the race all the way to the convention in Milwaukee this summer. March is International Women's Month, and many people are talking about the role of women in politics here and around the world. A new book challenges the notions that Muslim women have no role in political life. Sharla Hairi, an, an associate professor of cultural anthropology here at Boston University, is the author of The Unforgettable Queens of Islam, Succession, Authority, Gender. She says Muslim women have had powerful roles in politics for hundreds of years. So the first woman, I mean, the, the lead story is the famous story of the Queen of Sheba, <clears throat> which it is a transnational, transcultural figure, you know, um, mentioned in the three Abrahamic religions, you know, among the Jews and the Muslims and the Christians. In the tradition, there is a story that says women ought not be political leaders. But then, in real historical fact, we have women, some women, who have become rulers in medieval or modern Islam. So Hari uses five other examples, including 11th century queen of Yemen, Awa al-Silahi, 13th century queen from India, Razia Sultan, up to modern-day Pakistan's Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto, the first woman to head a democratic government in a Muslim-majority country. Hairi wrote her new book to use history to dispel the myth that Muslim women can't or shouldn't be in politics. Um, unfortunately, um, the image of Muslim women, I mean, Islam in general, but Muslim women in particular, has often been uh, portrayed as negative. So the dominant assumption of Muslim women is what has come to be known as a colonial narrative. And the assumption was that the European societies, the colonial societies, are um, much more advanced, uh, enlightened, secular, um, and um, this assumption of Islam as something more backward. Hairi uh. wants to change this perception of Muslim women, especially those who wear the hijab or niqab, that they are not able to take on public roles of leadership. But the assumption was that just because you wear the veil, then you lose your agency. And so one reason was for uh, a, a Western public to understand the agency of this woman and the professionalism of this woman, because many women who wear the veil are professionals. But not only that, just to put things in historical perspective, to see that in the 11th century there was a woman ruler 
in the Muslim world. In the 13th century, there was a woman ruler. Women in the Muslim world, just like women in this country or many other countries, are determined to play a role in their own destinies. And for that, they want to have a seat at the political table. That was Sharla Hairi, author of new book, The Unforgettable Queens of Islam, Succession, Authority, Gender, which comes out next month. This upcoming Sunday is International Women's Day, and 2020 marks the centennial of the 19th Amendment. But WTBU commentator Hannah Harn says that this celebration of women's suffrage may be premature. As we move into International Women's Month, many around the country are celebrating 2020 as the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage in America. In 1920, we ratified the 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote and calling for an end to sex-based voter discrimination. But while Native American women were vital to the passage of the 19th Amendment, they were left out until 1924, when the American government finally gave them citizenship through the Indian Citizenship Act. Even so, many state laws and policies kept Native Americans from voting until 1948. Chinese immigrants, including women, didn't have the right to vote until the passage of the Magnuson Act in 1943, and first-generation Japanese Americans weren't granted citizenship or the right to vote until the passage of the McCarran-Walter Act in 1952, reversing the 1790 naturalization law. The 24th Amendment of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 both took steps to prohibit racial, financial, and educational discrimination in voting, which resulted in a major jump in voting for African-American men and women alike. And it wasn't until 1984 that Mississippi ratified the 19th Amendment, becoming the last state to do so. And today, the Electoral College does not provide for residents of U.S. territories, including Puerto Rico, Guam, the U.S. Virgin Islands, the Northern Mariana Islands, American Samoa, and the U.S. Minor Outlying Islands to vote in presidential elections. Felony disenfranchisement laws, which bar voting for convicted felons, are still constitutional in the United States, and those who are in prison can't vote. 2020 is an important year. We remember the passage of the 19th Amendment as we prepared to elect a new commander-in-chief. But we cannot truly celebrate 100 years of women's suffrage until we are celebrating 100 years of suffrage for all women, regardless of race, class, or citizenship status. For WTBU News, I'm Hannah Harn, and that's my opinion. We'll be right back with an important update on what BU and other area colleges are doing about coronavirus. Stay with us. The novel coronavirus has been spreading undetected in Washington state. State health officials shared Monday that four more people had died of the virus in Seattle, bringing the total to six dead in the Seattle area. The outbreak in a nursing home indicates that the deceased so far have been older people and people with pre-existing conditions. Dr. El Torre Palazzo, who works at Evergreen Hospital, where several of the infected are being treated, spoke in a news conference Monday about the deaths. We now at this time have 10 confirmed cases of COVID-19 at Evergreen. Uh, Despite our uh, best efforts, six of those cases uh, have died. And our condolences go out to the patient's families. President Donald Trump met with pharmaceutical companies about progress toward a vaccine. He spoke in North Carolina last night. 
They're really working hard and they're working smart. And we had some, we had a great meeting today with a lot of the great companies and uh, they're going to have vaccines, I think, relatively soon. Washington isn't the only state with new diagnoses. New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts have also been reporting new cases as the number of states with coronavirus cases rises to 12. That's right, Kendall. Massachusetts reported its second case of the virus yesterday, and New Hampshire reported its first case. A hospital employee who had just visited Italy was the first person in New Hampshire to test positive for coronavirus. In Massachusetts, health officials said that a woman in her 20s from Norfolk County was the second positive case in Massachusetts. The woman had recently travelled to Italy with a school group. She is now at home recovering. At a press conference Monday afternoon, Governor Charlie Baker says Massachusetts still remains at low risk for an outbreak. You know, the game plan here is to make sure we're doing all the surveillance work we need to do, that we're in a position to, um, to conduct testing uh, as appropriate, and that we have a public health and a health care system uh, that's able and ready to deal with this as it, as it moves forward. The first case in Massachusetts is a male international college student who had travelled to Wuhan, China, where the outbreak of the virus first began. In Rhode Island, officials said one of the two people had also just returned from a European trip. Governor Gina Raimondo said in a news conference Sunday that residents should not worry. The risk here in Rhode Island at this point is low, and we have been preparing for this for weeks. Students from Emanuel University and Northeastern University are returning from study abroad this morning and are being asked to self-quarantine for two weeks. Here at Boston University, students studying abroad in Italy will also be returning to the United States. The novel coronavirus is making its way through northern Italy after the outbreak has begun to slow in China. It's also spreading to other countries like Australia, Thailand, and even France, who closed the Louvre to prevent further spread. Italy is one of the worst outbreaks at present, and many universities, as well as BU, have students studying abroad in these areas such as Rome, Venice, and Padua. On Friday, BU's Executive Director of Media Relations, Colin Riley, said they were urging students to take preventive measures and advising them not to travel. We don't put the restrictions in place. We provide guidance, and we get that guidance from, again, the national and local authorities over there. And if they're asking and making the request that they would like people to stay in place or not travel beyond their communities, we'll share that information with them and hope that they abide by it. However, the tides changed quickly as it was only a couple of days after that conversation that the decision was made to send the students home. And BU isn't alone in this. Rin Ramirez is an undergraduate student from Loyola University of Chicago who's studying abroad in Rome. Saturday, the Loyola Chicago students were told they were being sent home and they must leave by Wednesday. Just a day before, her university was advising the same as BU, taking action to sanitize, stay healthy, and not travel. We were asked to go to the nurse's office for um, a thermometer check. So everybody should be getting those in this week and next week. And they have sent um, a huge email to us about not traveling to northern Italy because that's where majority of the cases are mm. and not to go to public places like museums and stuff like that. So our professors have lowered their on-site classes because some of the classes on this uh, campus, every class they have is in a museum or 
um, a big landmark. So they've had to change their schedule a little bit. The situation continues to change, and with spring break coming, many students have travel concerns. The provost sent out an email to the student body about being aware of where you're traveling for the upcoming spring break. They listed six specific countries that are particularly at risk and continue to encourage hand washing and extra care. Students here at BU are upset over a policy change at the College of Communication. The film and television program has cracked down on equipment checkouts, forcing students to only use gear for current in-class projects. WTBU reporter Ina Joseph says students are not happy with the change. Since a group of Boston University students got caught renting equipment from the College of Communications Film Production Services for a non-academic project about three weeks ago, the film and television department has tightened up the process on checking out gear. While students are outraged by what they perceive as a change in policy, Department of Film and Television Chair Paul Schneider says the policy has been in place for 20 years now, and for good reason. We don't have anything close to enough equipment to just give it out to any student who wants to go out and make a personal project. If we did, we'd have to cancel our production classes. The classes are the primary purpose of the university. I mean, that's why we're here. While maintaining the quality and quantity of gear available for classes is paramount to the film and television department here at BU, so is the pursuit of film outside of class, according to film and TV junior Bryson Sandish, who's created the BU Film Coalition in response to recent events. I saw people were also upset about this because when you limit gear for independent projects, I mean, you're taking away a whole opportunity and you're taking away like a whole a whole field. I mean, this is part of the field is being to do stuff outside of class for this industry. And that is one part of a bigger problem of the fact in which there's no film culture, a culture of film production. There's so many aspects of that culture, right? Just returning equipment is one of them. Technology director Brad Fernandez is a film and television alum himself and completely understands students' frustration. However, he still maintains that equipment needs to be prioritized for academic purposes. I get it. I was a student here. I was a production student way back when. You know, it's just if we ever ran into a situation where we didn't have enough gear to cover the classes, I would have a lot more angry students, faculty, than just like a small collection of students that, that are upset because, you know, they just want blanket access to the gear. All that being said, film and TV chair Paul Schneider says that students can expect some change to the policy in the near future. We are looking into how we could come up with a policy where students could shoot personal or non-production class projects. So I expect in a month or so we'll be able to uh, let the students know what, we, what we're thinking and what we could come up with. This is Ina Joseph for WTBU in Boston. And we'll be right back with a look at international news and later a story we're buzzing about. Bees, stay with us. Payer, balayer, oublier, je 
grand mes plaisirs Je n'ai plus besoin de Ninety percent of the votes in yesterday's Israel election have been counted and show Prime Minister Benjamin significantly leading against former Army Chief Benny Gantz, but falling short of a parliamentary majority. This is the third election he has won in the last two years, but has failed to form a government. It looks like Netanyahu will get 59 seats, putting him too short of a majority in the 120-seat parliament. Speaking at a polling station yesterday, Netanyahu tried to assuage voter fears of coronavirus to persuade them to get out to vote. Go vote. Go vote. It's a proud day. This is a democracy. Uh, you have a, a great right that you should exercise with confidence. Uh, the corona uh, thing is completely under control. Today, we're, we've taken all the precautions that are necessary. People can go and vote with complete confidence. Netanyahu won, even though he still faces charges of bribery and corruption. A peace plan to end America's longest war in Afghanistan is hitting some roadblocks. The Taliban say they will resume attacks against Afghan government forces after President Ashraf Ghani said the government had made, quote, no commitment to free thousands of Taliban prisoners. This is a major setback in the Trump administration's peace plan for the country which agreed that both the Afghan government and the Taliban would release political prisoners before entering into talks next week. In a statement Sunday, Ghani publicly disagreed with the prisoner release timeline laid out in the US-Taliban deal. Terrorism morphs. And the reason we insist in our discussions with the Taliban that they sever their ties with all terrorist groups, not just Al-Qaeda, is precisely because of this. The deal agreement has U.S. and NATO allies withdrawing troops within 14 months, but that is, that is only if the peace deal goes ahead. Greek troops and riot police are still on high alert along the Turkish border today after this weekend's clash between migrants and authorities. 10,000 migrants have tried to cross the border since Thursday when Turkey announced they would allow refugees passage into Europe. This is a retraction of a 2016 deal between Turkey and the European Union in which Turkey agreed to hold Syrian refugees in their territory in return for billions of euros in aid. Turkey says the EU had not been holding up their end of the deal and they are beyond capacity. And we'll be right back. This just in, 
Boston University's beloved mascot, Rhett the Terrier, has died this morning. He was 12 years old. Time now for WTBU's music reporter, Emily Wilson. Hey, Emily, what's new on the music scene? Well, Catherine, the music industry in Nashville is facing a major setback. The tornadoes that hit Tennessee overnight will affect the music scene of the city. The Basement East, a popular club in Nashville, is one of the many buildings hit and is almost completely destroyed. A mural on the side of the building that reads, I Believe in Nashville, is one of the only parts of the building that remains intact. Employees working at the venue were able to take shelter in the basement moments before the building was hit. Putnam County Mayor Randy Porter explains the scene of the devastation. We have some major damage to homes, trees, and power lines. We have multiple injuries and hundreds of responders are in that area working currently. Uh, Lots of ambulances, lots of police cars, lots of fire trucks. Thankfully here in Boston, the music scene is alive and well and very out there. Octave of Light, a music album that combines music and science, comes out in November, but you can get a taste of the album now with a couple songs that have been released. The album explores the concept of turning light into sound. I chatted with the composer of the album, David Ibbett, to get more insight on how this project came to be. Ibbett teaches piano at his studio in Burlington, Mass., is a visiting professor at Worcester Polytech, and directs a multiverse concert series that uses his practice of music and science in performances. Boston's been such a great place to uh, pursue these music and science projects because there's so many researchers and universities. Although a lot of the project is of its own work, many people have been involved in the making of Octave of Light. The science aspect of the album had help from Roy Gould, a biophysicist who works for Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysicists. Ibbitt uses scientific findings to create the classical electronic music on the album. So that's the new project, and we're doing it on a bigger scale. So some of the music has, has been out, uh, performed already, but the whole, it's, it's like a concept album, so it's all about exoplanets. Exoplanets are interesting because they orbit outside the solar system, around stars that aren't the sun. Ibit describes how the album was made with science. I'm always interested in taking something sort of complex and abstract like uh, like that. I mean, if you look at the, if you're looking at exoplanets, you use a telescope that can can detect a, a really really wide range of, of frequencies, and it comes out as a graph. You know, it's it's too much information for our eyes to see. So I'm thinking, you know, how can we make this data into something you can really perceive and um, turning the light from the telescope into uh, music has been the, the concept for the album. So the um, wavelengths of, of infrared light uh, become frequencies of, of sound and notes on the piano. Emmett is currently working on an interactive app for the audience to use and make their own sonifications with. He's been turning the spectra, which are light profiles of the exoplanets, into musical chords with the use of a process involving algorithms. The app lets people go through the process in a similar way. Ibit and his team are also printing sound books with piano versions of the music that students can learn. A performance of the album is planned for November at the Charles Hayden Planetarium at the Boston Museum of Science. 
For more information, head to octaveoflight.com. The music scene in Boston is chock full of great concerts this month. You can find a show nearly every night of the month at Paradise Rock Club. Some of the names coming up include Bruno Major and country singers Ryan Hurd and Riley Green. At the House of Blues, the Dropkick Murphys will perform two shows, one on the 15th and one on St. Patrick's Day. The last show of the month on the 24th will be by the rock band Third Eye Blind. For hip-hop and rap fans looking to go to a show on St. Patrick's Day, Bostonian hip-hop artist Slane will be at the Brighton Music Hall. Young Dolph and Key Glock will also be at the House of Blues tomorrow. Two concerts will be featured at TD Garden this month, including Michael Buble on March 25th and one of the biggest names in music right now, Billie Eilish, on March 19th. At this year's Grammy Awards, Eilish won five out of the six awards she was nominated for, including Best New Artist, Record of the Year, Album of the Year, Song of the Year, and Best Pop Vocal Album. I'm that bad type, make your mama sad type, make your girlfriend mad type, might seduce your dad type, I'm the bad Finally today, a new twist on a police sting operation. A 911 call in Pasadena, California, spiraled into a wild situation, with first responders getting attacked by an aggressive swarm of 30 to 40,000 bees. That's right, 40,000 angry bees. It happened last week with a 911 call about a person being stung by a beer by a bee near Pasadena City College. The first firefighter to arrive at the scene immediately started getting attacked by the bees. The firefighter's first thought was to run back into his fire truck to take cover, but then remembered his partner inside was allergic to bees, so any of the bees that followed him in could pose a deadly threat. Stuck outside, he ultimately got 15 to 20 bee stings. The fire department called in police to cordon off the bee-filled area, but in the end, a local beekeeper saved the day by removing the hive. But first responders and even the beekeeper say they'd never seen anything like this, calling it like a scene from a horror movie. And on that happy note, that will do it for this edition of the WTBU News Brunch. I'm Kendall Tamer. And I'm Catherine Swindles. Stay tuned to WTVU for all your news, sports, and music. We leave you now with the Bee Gees, or is that the Bees Gees song, Staying Alive. Hope you have a bee-free day. 